0: Well, guys, it's my privilege to introduce to you a good friend and one of our table leaders um, here at Reload, table number 23. Um, and I'd, I'd like to present to him, just informally, a formal, informal um, doctorate degree from Reload, so we have our own Dr. King. Would you please welcome Mr. Mike King? Mike? Thank you, Pastor Tom. All right. Good morning, guys. So, I'm not gonna lie. I'm a little nervous about this. Um, this is something on your uh, table. There's a handout because there's a lot of there could be a lot of notes to this, uh, and I think this is pretty cool. What God's doing. Um, I shared this with a men's group uh, that I've been a part of uh, for a long time. I think over 10 years. Um, these guys from Chicago. Every year we get away for a short weekend of prayer and just challenging each other, and we do devotions. So one of the leaders asked me if I would lead devotions uh, this this past time. um, So this is what God put on my heart. And I thought it was just going to be for that. Uh, And then God's like, I want you to share this with Reload. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, I don't, you know, maybe that's just more of me, and I'm not really hearing from you, God. And the crazy thing is, is uh, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting back at my table, and God's like, I want you to share it. You need to go talk to Pastor Tom. I want you to share it. And I'm like, if you really want me to share this, God, Pastor Tom's going to have to come over and ask me to share this word. <laughs> and literally, 10 seconds later, Pastor Tom tapped me on the shoulder, and he's like, hey, do you have something to share with Reload? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So, all right. Um, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time, Lord. I just pray uh, that uh, we would honor you as men, Lord, not only today, Lord, but going forward in our day, Lord, in our families, in our communities, at our places of work with the things we say and do. Thank you for uh, your awesome revelation of word, Lord, and what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So thank you, uh, Pastor Tom, for listening to the Holy Spirit and uh, getting me up here for this. Uh, And I just want to acknowledge one thing. Uh, The way that this kind of came together is uh, a little bit of transparency. Growing up, um, I read the Bible, but I kind of thought the Bible was a little boring. Uh, And over the last probably year or two years, God's taken me on a journey where he's peeled back a lot of the layers in the Bible and just blown my mind with a lot of stuff that's been in there and really changed my outlook on um, God's Word. So one of the people that God led me to uh, was a gentleman by the name of Chuck Missler. He's got a lot of material out there. Uh, So this, uh, all these concepts and stuff, they started with God. Obviously God, he, Chuck Missler, saw these things. Um, But he's got a great resource, it's called Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. It's a brief 24-period overview of the Bible. Um, where a lot of these things come from. So I just want to give him credit. You can get that free on YouTube. Uh, He's got it posted on there. I encourage you to check that out um, and see what God has for you in that. So we live in an age of deceit. If you watch the news, if you know what's going on in our world, doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, um, lying and deceit uh, in our day and age uh, is becoming more and more uh, prevalent. Um, So God is asking us this question, uh, do you trust me? And every day I think God is asking us, you know, will you trust me today in some way or some form? It's different every day. Well, how do we know someone is trustworthy? We know someone is trustworthy, or at least I think somebody is trustworthy, one, by their actions, and secondly, uh, by their, or I should say, first, by their words, and secondly, and most importantly, by their actions, Do their actions back up what they say? So how do we know God is trustworthy? We have his word, but then we also have his actions, which the word reveals, and more specifically, prophecy in the Bible. Um, So Isaiah 46, 9, 10, it's on there on your sheet. You can follow along. It says, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. So in the Bible, a guy by the name of J. Burton Payne, he wrote the Encyclopedia for Bible, uh, Biblical Prophecy. Uh, there's 8,362 predictive verses. 1,817 predictions are made on 737 separate matters. Now, let's think about our Bible for a minute. This is 66 books that were written by over 40 authors over thousands of years that have come together here. I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? Over thousands of years. And some of these guys, a lot of those guys didn't know each other. So how could that be, that God could take all that stuff and put it together in one congruent message that's simple enough for a child to understand, but yet the stuff that is underneath the scriptures and hidden within is just, is mind blowing. So there are no other equivalents, not the Islam's Quran, not the Hindu's Veda, not the Hindu's Bhagavad Gita, not the Book of Mormon, not Nostradamus, not occultic mediums, channelers, or New Age spirit guides. Um, The major prophetic themes covered in the Bible, Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, Babylon, Russia, also known as Magog, the rise of China, the European superstate, state, uh, ecumenical religion, global government, and the rise of the occult. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at uh, one prophecy specifically in the Old Testament, and then we're gonna look at a couple of uh, other prophecies in the Old Testament and see how they play out in the New uh, Testament. So the first prophecy is gonna come from Daniel 5. Uh, and this takes place in Babylon, and if you don't know, Babylon was like a literal military fortress. Uh, it was a double-walled city. Uh, some historians say it encompassed a 15 mile squared, which is ginormous. I think I looked that up, it's like almost 10,000 acres. Uh, these walls were so big, they were 350 feet tall, historians tell us, and they were 38 feet wide. They used to race chariots six by six on top of the walls. All the way around for, for sport. Um, had roughly 250 watchtowers placed around it. So at the time, this was the place, you know, the impenetrable uh, fortress. So, what we have going on in Daniel 5 is we have uh, King Belshazzar, right? He gets together a thousand of his nobles and he's throwing this grand party. Uh, previously, uh, the city of Jerusalem had been taken over by uh, Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and the Jews had been removed from it. They stole all the Jews' treasures. So when Belshazzar, Belshazzar throws this party, he has uh, his servants or whatever go and get all the sacred objects that they took from the temple so that um, him and his party guests could drink from it and uh, drink from them and have a good old time. Well, uh, while they're partying, a human hand appears on the wall and begins writing. Everyone freaks out, of course, uh, and it's, it's funny, um, Daniel 5, 6 uh, states that uh, King Belshazzar's loins were loosed. And basically uh, what that means is his knees were knocking. He was so scared of uh, what was going on. So he brings forth all his enchanters, his astrologers, his diviners to interpret what was written on the wall. And no one can do it. Well, the queen comes and says, hey, there's this guy from your dad's time. Uh, your dad had these dreams and he was able to interpret it. Why don't we go find him? His name's Daniel. So they go and get Daniel and they bring him out of hiding wherever he was at uh, and they ask him to interpret and he's able to do that. So we have Daniel 5 verses 25 through 30. This is the inscription that was written Mene, many, many take a and That's what was written on the wall. Here is what these words mean Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided. And given to the Medes and Persians. Then as Belshazzar Belshazzar commanded, Daniel was clothed in a purple and gold chain and placed around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was slain. So while this party was going on, what uh, we find in other places in the Bible is uh, a guy by the name of Cyrus sent what equates to basically a special ops team Um, into Babylon because he was going to take it over. And in Babylon, this walled city, uh, the river Euphrates ran through the middle. And so what these guys did is they went, I don't know, a couple miles up the river and they dammed it off, not dammed it off, they created uh, the word escapes me, but they diverted some of the flow so that the river level would lower. And it says uh, they lowered it to where the river came up basically to their knees. And then they walked down the riverbed under the cover of night and then snuck under the wall into the city. And while everyone was partying, they were able to take the city over virtually with no, with no fight. Uh, according to the Greek historian Herodias, this was October 12, 539 uh, B.C., that uh, Cyrus' generals were able to capture the city. So on the next page, uh, you'll find some information on Cyrus if you want to read that in your spare time. Uh, so basically, the generals come in, they take the, the city over, they kill King Belshazzar, and then 10 days later, Cyrus makes his uh, grand entrance into Babylon, and he's greeted by Daniel, right, the same guy that read the writing on the wall. And Daniel pulls out this scroll that's 150 years old, and it's the book of Isaiah, and he opens it up, and specifically, he opens it up to Isaiah 44:27 27 through 28, which says, That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. goes on in Isaiah 45. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. We just talked about that. To open before him the two levied gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break into pieces the gates of brass and cut into sunder the bars of iron. Isaiah 45, 3-5. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. And thou mayest knowest that I, the Lord, which called thee by thy name, am the God of Israel for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect I have even called thee by thy name I have summoned thee thou hast not known me I am the Lord and there is none else there is no god beside me I girded thee though thou hast not known me I mean that is just incredible right here you are this foreign king you know nothing about this god of the Israelites you know you take this city over you come in to proclaim your glory, and this guy walks up to you, and he says, hey, let me show you something that's written in our historical text. And he pulls out this scroll from 150 years ago that names you by name and says what you're going to do or what you did and, furthermore, what you're about to do. So what happens? Cyrus is so impressed, uh, 2 Chronicles 36, through 23. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah, and of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. Ezra 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah, and all his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All the neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God, Cyrus King of Persia had them brought by uh, Mirthadath to the, the treasurer who counted them out to Shesbazar, the prince of Judah. This is, was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30, silver dishes, 1,000, silver pans, 29, gold bowls, 30, matching silver bowls, 410, other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shesbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon. To Jerusalem, right? People say you can't, people ask, how do you know the Bible's true? <laughs> how do you know the Bible is true? Here's something that was predicted 150 years before it happened by God. He called the person out by name, said what the person would do down to the exact detail. And here this guy in history comes along and does that the exact detail you can prove the bible is absolutely true not only that it's confirmed by history so on your uh, document you'll see a picture it's not very clear but you can check this out on the internet this is the stele of cyrus basically it's a journal that cyrus com- commissioned uh was discovered by Hormaz rosman in the 19th century it can be seen in the british museum in london And on it, it says, without any battle, he entered the town, sparing any calamity. I returned to the sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which had been ruins for a long time and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gather all the former inhabitants and return to them their habitations. So you have Cyrus's own journal, which documents what was done in Ezra 1. So, we had this question, how sure can we be of something? And a famous mathematician, uh, William Thompson, said, until we can measure a thing, we really know very little about it. So, how can we measure our confidence that Jesus really was who he said he was? Uh, 2 Peter one sixteen. I know it says one nineteen. that's a little mistake, sorry about that, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Furthermore, in uh, verses 119, we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. So what Peter is basically saying is that we have something more sure to us today than being an actual eyewitness, right? It's one thing to see something happen, but it's another thing to have somebody tell you something is going to happen and then see that come to pass. And that's what we just saw in this prophecy, and that's what we're going to see as we move forward talking about uh, these prophecies of Jesus So just to recap, there's uh, 8,362 predictive verses in the Bible, 1,817 predictions were made on 730 separate matters in the Bible. So here's some Old Testament prophecies that are specifically quoted in the Gospels. He was about Jesus. He was to be of David's family. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would sojourn in Egypt. He would live in Galilee, specifically Nazareth. His coming would be announced by an Elijah-like herald. Uh, his coming would occasion a massacre of Bethlehem's children. Uh, he would proclaim a jubilee to the world. His mission would include the Gentiles. Ministry would be, His ministry would be one of healing. He would teach through parables. He would be disbelieved, rejected by rulers. He would make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would be like a smitten shepherd would be given vinegar and gold. They would cast lots for his garments. His side would be pierced. Not a bone would be broken. He would die among malefactors. His dying words foretold would be buried by a rich man, rise from the dead on a third day, resurrection followed by destruction. Uh, Just a side note on this, well not a side note, uh, but the one I love the most if you want to take the time to read it. As uh, read Psalms 22 and Psalms 23, I believe, when you have a second, uh, it's amazing how that Old Testament, those Old Testament chapters talk in detail of Jesus' crucifixion before it ever even happened, almost like Jesus himself was writing the words uh, as he laid there on the cross. Um, so these are, there are others, but these are the ones that are quoted uh, explicitly in the New Testament. All right, I apologize. Uh, We've got 10 minutes, so I got to go kind of fast. Um, The Old Testament was translated into Greek by uh, the year 270 B.C., um, and it contains over 300 prophecies detailing the coming Messiah. We're going to look at just eight of them um, and see what the odds are of Jesus fulfilling just these eight out of 300. So prophecy uh, number one, born in Bethlehem, uh, Micah 5.2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrati, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. What is the probability of any person taking at random of fulfilling this? Um, and obviously you can read that story for yourself in Matthew two one. Uh, so for all the, the math geeks out there, um, the probability uh, breaks down that uh, you look at you'd probably, to be conservative, and this information came from a guy, a mathematician, his name is Peter Stoner, uh, and he wrote a book called Science Speaks, if you want some uh, additional reading. Um, But he conservatively figured the prophecy of one person being born in Bethlehem uh, is not very difficult. So at that time, uh, 10,000 people out of a million, uh, the population of Bethlehem was roughly 10,000 people at that time. Um, So basically that breaks down to one in one hundred thousand. So one person out of hundred thousand, out of a hundred thousand, is uh, could have been born in Bethlehem. So not a very difficult prophecy uh, to fulfill. Uh, prophecy number two: uh, someone presents himself uh, as a king riding in on a donkey. Zechariah nine nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. That was fulfilled in Mark 11, 1 through 11. So once again, how many people have presented themselves as a king throughout history, uh, riding uh, into Jerusalem as a donkey? I mean, anybody could proclaim themselves as a king, get a donkey, and ride through Jerusalem. Um, so that's not a very difficult prophecy in itself. Uh, one in a hundred is the probability that was given to that. Prophecy number three, 30 pieces of silver. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, that was fulfilled in Matthew 26, 14 through 15, when Judas sold uh, Jesus out uh, for 30 pieces of silver. Um, Someone being sold out for 30 pieces of silver throughout the, the history of time. Uh, same probability, one in a, uh, out of a 1,000 for that one. Prophecy number four, temple and a potter. Uh, Zechariah eleven thirteen. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter a goodly price that I, will, that I was prized out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Matthew 27, 6 through 8. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said it is not lawful for uh, them to put or to put them in the treasury because it is the price of blood and they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in wherefore the field was called the field of blood unto this day so a little more detail on that Uh, so basically Judas sold uh, Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver he felt really guilty he tried to bring it back to the temple and give it back to him in in efforts uh, to repent so back then Uh, with the temple, right, the temple was responsible for anybody, any stranger that came there and that died. They were responsible for burying them um, and performing the services. So what uh, the priests did when Judas brought back the money is they couldn't take it. Per se, and put it back in the treasury because it was for blood, uh, the price of blood. So, what they did is they prepaid their expenses. They went to a nearby field that a potter owned and they bought this field so that they would have land uh, for the coming years to bury people in uh, that happened to pass away at the temple. Um, so, what is the uh, probability that someone would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and then they'd use that uh, silver to uh, buy a potter's field? Uh, they put that probability at one in a 100,000. I know this is, uh, there's a little math in here, but stay with me, I promise the payoff is huge. Uh, Prophecy five, wounds in his hand, Zechariah 13, six. And one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Thomas's unbelief, uh, John twenty twenty five through 29. But he, Thomas, said unto them, "'Except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails "'and put my finger into the prints of the nails "'and thrust my hands into his side, I will not believe.' And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them, and then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, "'Peace be unto you,' then saith he, he to Thomas.' Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said, saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So the probability established to how many people taken at random have been wounded in their hands in the house of their friends, uh, one in 1,000. Prophecy six: No defense, though innocent. Isaiah fifty-three seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted; yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. How many prisoners accused of a capital crime make no defense, even though they're innocent? And you might not realize this or not. Um, I didn't uh, from. Until I went through this uh, this course, and I went back and looked to see if this was true. Jesus actually went through six trials. There was three Jewish ones and three Roman uh, trials. Um, so, and he didn't uh, obviously he didn't speak up for himself or he didn't claim his innocence in any one of those. Uh, the probability of that happening was assigned one in one thousand. We got two more to go. Prophecy seven: Died with the wicked, buried with the rich. Isaiah fifty three nine. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. So obviously he was uh, crucified um, on the cross with the two criminals. And then after he died, um, who am I thinking of? Uh, Thank you very much, Joseph Aramea, who was very uh, wealthy, uh, bought uh, Jesus' tomb or the tomb and uh, placed Jesus in it. So the probability of that being fulfilled, uh, uh, one in one thousand. Prophecy number eight: uh, Crucified Psalms or Psalms 22:16. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So that verse was written 700 years before crucifixion was even invented. It was written a thousand years before Jesus' birth. How many people taken at random? Uh, over centuries have died by having hands and feet feet pierced. Crucifixion was pretty popular uh, when it came about. So that was one in 10,000. There's a little blurb on composite probabilities that you can read on your own time if you're really into uh, the math. Um, So basically on the next page, what we have is a summary of this. Uh, We have only eight of the more than 300 Old Testament prophecies uh, born in Bethlehem, one out of 100,000. Uh, king on a donkey, one in a hundred. 30 pieces of silver, one in one uh, um, thousand. The silver given back in the temple used to buy the potter's field, one in a hundred thousand. Uh, wounded in his hands, one in a thousand. No defense, even though he was innocent, one in a thousand. Died with the wicked, one in a thousand. Uh, crucified, one in ten thousand. So the odds of all eight being fulfilled by one person uh, breaks down to one and 10 to the 28th, which the 28th is 28 zeros after that. Um, The odds of one person in all of of history fulfilling all eight uh, is actually less, um, which breaks down to 10 to the 17th uh, power. So to give an illustration of how big this is, Right, So say you had a bucket of 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, you would have enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas, two feet deep in quarters, and the probability of Jesus fulfilling all these would be if they put a blindfold on you and they marked one of those silver dollars uh, with some lipstick or something, covered the back without a permanent marker and checked it off, however you wanted to denote, you know, and they buried that somewhere and they brought you up in a helicopter blindfolded and told you to find the one silver dollar in the, that was marked in the entire state of Texas. So that's just eight out of the 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. The numbers get even more astronomical uh, as um, the prophecies go up and the prophecies we picked, there's the ones that he picked in this book Uh, were very simple prophecies. The prophecies get more complex and more specific um, as you go throughout the 300. So what does this say to us, right, as guys, right? You can be more sure of God doing what he says he will do than you can of your own name. Once again, God finds a new way every day to ask us, do you trust me, right? So I think the questions for us is, do you trust him? Do you trust what God says? Do you trust what God has said he has for your life? Um, And then two other things to ponder is what will you trust him with, right? There's certain parts of all our lives that we give to God more than others for various reasons, whether we're scared or we're shameful, whatever that may look like um, for you. And then finally, what will you trust God for, right? What do you believe in God for this year that he's gonna do in your, in your life? What's he gonna do in your marriage? What's he gonna do in your family with your kids? You got any wayward relatives, any brothers that you don't get along with? I don't know. Maybe you don't get along with your parents. Maybe you don't get along with your dad. Maybe like a guy, I know you haven't spoken to your dad in 20 years, and God told you that he's gonna restore that relationship, and you're kind of snickering like, okay...